Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, HIV testing is self-care. That's the theme for this year's National HIV Testing Day. And today's conversations will focus on how Georgia is faring and discuss equity concerns within testing to treatment and awareness campaigns. Now, all that's just ahead, but we'll begin with news reports related to the Supreme Court and, of course, overturning Roe versus Wade. Abortion rights supporters in Georgia say they're worried about what comes next. As we hear from Emily Wu Pearson, more than a thousand protesters marched through downtown Atlanta over the weekend. Janet Starks drove an hour north from Grantville to Atlanta to protest at the state capitol on Saturday. She was one of hundreds gathered there, while a few blocks away, others rallied at Centennial Olympic Park. Starks says Democratic politicians aren't doing enough. We need to look at our local offices. We all need to step up. If we're not doing it for our, us, we do it for our kids, we do it for our friends who, who was here before us. They're not, they're not here anymore. We got to take care of each other. Starks echoed the sentiments of organizers who spoke throughout the weekend. Another protester, Kaylin McIntosh, says she sees more protests in the future if abortion rights are not restored. If this doesn't change, then we need to do something about it because women are going to be dying. And it's really a shame that, that's a, that if that is what it's going to take. And I really hope it doesn't. But we, we need to fight back. A law that would ban abortion after about six weeks in Georgia has been held up in court since 2019. But it could soon take effect. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. Now, Georgia's restrictive abortion law passed by state Republicans could soon take effect. The decision now puts states, courts, Georgia's attorney general and local prosecutors on the front lines of the abortion debate. As we hear from our WABE politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. A few hours after the Supreme Court's ruling, Georgia's Republican Attorney General Chris Carr filed a notice with the Federal Appeals Court, where Georgia's 2019 abortion law has been held up for several years. Carr called the Supreme Court's decision constitutionally correct and asked the appeals court to let Georgia's law take effect. The law would ban most abortions after about six weeks. A ruling is expected this summer. Even so, the law is likely to face other legal challenges. Democrat Jen Jordan says if she's elected attorney general, she would argue the law is unconstitutional under Georgia law. Georgia's state constitution has robust privacy protections, as Jordan explained on WABE's Closer Look. There is a real legal question as to whether or not under state law women have a fundamental right 
to privacy that then would allow them access to reproductive health care. Jordan is already emphasizing abortion rights in her campaign for attorney general. But what Georgia's attorney general does not have the power to do is decide whether or not to enforce the law's criminal provisions. That's up to local district attorneys. A few prosecutors, including in Fulton, DeKalb, and Athens, have pledged not to prosecute those who seek or provide abortions. But that may not be the case across large swaths of Georgia, meaning Georgia's restrictive abortion law could be applied unevenly. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And abortion is now likely to be one of the main issues in Georgia's already heated race for governor, as we hear from our other WABE politics reporter, Raul Bally. Democratic candidate for Governor Stacey Abrams says she believes some lawmakers who passed the state's ban never believed it was going to take effect. Women in the state of Georgia are about to be under assault. This has implications that were not considered during those debates because they were considered theoretical and highly unlikely to come to fruition. This is 2019. So much has changed. And I believe that the composition of the Georgia legislature and the ire and voting power of the women of Georgia will absolutely signal that we can make this right. Governor Brian Kemp also focused on the 2019 law that moves Georgia from effectively banning abortion at 20 weeks of pregnancy to six weeks of pregnancy with exceptions. In a written statement, he called the U.S. Supreme Court ruling historic and that he's looking forward to the implementation of the ban, which has been held up in federal court. The state of Georgia has already filed notice with that court to allow the 2019 law to take effect. The reality for both Kemp and Abrams is that passing new abortion legislation will depend on the Republican majority in the Georgia state capitol. Raul Bally, WABE News. And as mentioned, today is National HIV Testing Day. Several events are taking place throughout the Atlanta area, including one from the organization Here's to Life. Now, they're going to be offering free HIV testing, COVID testing, COVID vaccines and boosters, as well as HIV education. And that's taking place today at 1115 RAF Abernathy Southwest. Here's to Life is an organization that helps those living with HIV AIDS find housing and other resources. Now, when we come back, we'll focus on National HIV Testing Day with a focus on women and Georgia's rural communities. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As I've been saying, today is National HIV Testing Day. The theme this year is HIV testing is self-care. Now, the United States has come a long way in addressing HIV and AIDS, but decades ago, when very little was known, there were some attempts to educate those populations most at risk. We're actually going to go back to Atlanta, 1987. Margie Gay Peterson is in a battle to raise black awareness to AIDS, and her battlefield is this Spelman College classroom. AIDS is preventable. If you won't abstain, then that's why I have these condoms. Yes, you may, you may pass them around. As, uh, Part of the lesson here is that nationwide there are three times as many cases of AIDS in the minority community proportionately than in the community at large, and that a surprising number of those cases are black women and their babies. And many times I find tears coming to my eyes because we still say, not me, them, they, those, is, is people over there. It's not us. People are still doing that even today. Every time you turn your radio on, every time you open your newspaper, you say something about AIDS. Yet for whatever is going on, we're still ignorant and we still turn our backs. And that hurts. It hurts me to know. It hurts others um, to, 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 to be ignorant and not open up to learning. 
In the minority community, AIDS is not just a disease that primarily affects homosexuals. It strikes black heterosexual men and women in disproportionately large numbers. Pregnant women can pass it to their babies. 60% of the children with AIDS are black. Drug addiction and the use of dirty needles by IV drug users is now the leading cause of AIDS in the minority community. According to some studies, from one-half to three-quarters of the addict population in major American cities now test positive for the AIDS virus. But because it may be three years or more for these cases to develop, the full impact of these statistics may not have been felt. No case of AIDS is known to have been caused by being around a person with AIDS. Now, well, it's not contagious in the sense that you got a cold when I can Margie Gay Peterson counsels addicts and recovering addicts like this man to practice safer sex. Infected IV drug users can infect others even if they have no symptoms themselves. That's one of the important reasons that over half of the small but growing number of women with AIDS are black. Lula Mosley, a friend of Margie's, is one of them. She is 38, the mother of four, and she has never used drugs. She contracted AIDS two years ago from her husband, an IV drug user. He has no symptoms. Earlier this year, the two women talked to a group of young people. There is nothing that's more frightening and sad than to become ill be hospitalized and they tell you you have AIDS and at this time you know there's nothing that we can do for you. Wow, that is from a 1987 local news feature with longtime broadcast journalist Bob Barr. Let's fast forward to 2022. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HIV testing and prevention has reduced annual infections by more than two-thirds since the mid-1980s. Even so, fewer than 40% of people in the U.S. have ever been tested for the virus. That's also from the CDC, which means there's a lot more to do. And especially if the goal is to end the HIV epidemic in the U.S. by 2030, that includes a 75% reduction in new HIV infections by 2025 and a 90% reduction by 2030. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Tammy Kinney, HIV-AIDS activist and founder of Rural Women in Action, and Janetta Richburg, Director of Client Services for Aid Atlanta. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Tammy, let me start with you. When you hear that, that report from 1987, what some things are still the same <laughs> and some has changed, but what stands out to you? Well, as a woman that is diagnosed well, let me say living and thriving with HIV. Some calls it advanced HIV. My initial diagnosis was in 1987. So I can remember lack of education, lack of resources, doctors telling black women, black men, um, same gender loving individuals that it was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And with me, with my personal experience, also addicted to drugs, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. 
So life just passed me by. Um, I was truly uneducated. But when I began to understand and to be around a group of individuals and other women that were actually doing powerful things, in my mind, I wanted to be like them. And I had this internal stigma because people were saying that men and women were going to die and seemed like it was just focused on just a set of group of people. Mm-hmm. And see, back then, you know, we weren't talking about addiction and mental health and HIV and the other comorbidities of health. We weren't talking about that. Mm-hmm. We were basically people were telling us that we were not going to make it. Wow. Janetta, you hear that report from 1987, and you hear what Tammy just said. Goes to your mind. Yeah, the, the first thing I think is, wow, there's so many things that are still the same, mm-hmm. which is very, very disheartening, especially when you think about what the plan is to end HIV. I mean, I was six in 1987, mm-hmm. and now we see that we've we have come a long way mm-hmm. i definitely you know agree with that you have wonderful people that are living thriving surviving which is awesome um but you also have people that aren't and mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that we have not gotten as far as i think we should be at this point that goal i mentioned the part of the national hiv aid strategy for 2022 to 2025 this is from the biden administration It's a collaborative effort to end what they say, end the HIV epidemic in the U.S. by 2030. Now, I want to stay with you, Janetta. Is that a realistic goal, you think? I I like to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. I do. I do try to stick to the positive side of things. Um, And so in that sense, I would love to see an end to HIV. Um, It may be an end to my job, which is totally okay. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. Um, I think a lot has to happen in order for us to see an end of HIV by 2030. I mean, Mm -hmm. time flies. Mm -hmm. We're in, we're already in mid 2022. Mm -hmm. 2030 is going to be here before we know Mm -hmm. it. And unless there are some drastic changes um, that take place, then no, we we may not be able to reach that goal. And in terms of and I'll get to you in a moment, Tammy, in terms of ending the epidemic, which may not mean that you're going to end spread of the virus, but in terms of this, this designation of there's this epidemic that's been going on for so long. But then if you focus on maybe reducing new infections, should that be the, the bigger goal then? Um, I would definitely say so. Um, that is actually one uh, part of the mission of Aid Atlanta is to reduce new um, HIV infections. And a really important focus in order to do that is to ensure that people are virally suppressed, those that are living with HIV, that um, that they know their status. This is why National Testing Day is very important, um, that people have access to medical care. I mean, all of those things have to take place in order for us to be able to seriously reduce the number of HIV infections. But yes, that's definitely the um, what has to happen, you know, retention and care, adherence to medication, those things go together. Tammy, that 90% reduction by 2030, that a realistic goal, you think? 
for me, I'm going to boldly say no. And the reason why I say no, because we have to look at so many different other factors. We got to look at racism. We got to look at these rural areas where it's lack of resources. Um, women and people of color are afraid to go um, to the doctor because they don't have insurance. And then we also got to look at the stigma that is still in the South. Mm-hmm. Even though I agree with the young lady from Aid Atlanta, mm-hmm. we have to focus on being virally suppressed. Because what happens in my mind and in my thoughts as an individual also diagnosed with depression, as they call a mental issue or mental illness, and working in behavioral health, we have to be able to address the other issues parallelly with Mm -hmm. having an HIV diagnosis. Why are people falling out of care? Why are people not adherence to medication? It is a collaborative effort. We all have to get on board. But sending the message for me would be better to say, let's see if we can get the population of people that is most affected by HIV and AIDS to be virally suppressed. And then maybe everybody will go for that. Let's talk about messaging for a moment. Because messaging is all about mindset. It is. I want to go back to 1987. And when you, can you, do you feel comfortable sharing where you were when you heard that, when the doctor told you? And who was, who did you tell next? When the doctor told me, it looked like he was about to cry. I was just there. I was, I was numb. And the first person that I called was my mom. No, I called my sister. My sister called my mom. And it seemed like they was up there like they had took a jet. And it was there at Grady Hospital here in Atlanta. And, but my addiction, lack of education and awareness and my mental health, and, I, and I'm going to say illness, mm-hmm. it didn't allow me to focus on the HIV. Even though the doctor gave me resources where to go, I didn't have... I had a support system with my family, but I didn't have an outside support system because I really didn't know where to go. So the only thing focused in my mind was I was actually diagnosed with an AIDS diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but I am the evidence (laughs) that I'm still here. As you told more people, and I don't know what that, that progress was like, that process was like, but did people, did you feel like folks were judging you? I judged myself. Mm-hmm. And I had internal stigma. And it didn't allow me to disclose my status in the 80s mm-hmm. and actually in the 90s. And I got hooked up. I want to say hooked up because at that time that was my language. Mm-hmm. But I was involved with a group of ladies in Atlanta that were okay with their status. And like I said earlier, I wanted to be okay with mine. And my mind kept going back to the day that I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. You remember that date? I do. What was it date? It was October the 17th, 1987. Wow. And I will be celebrating this year. 
<laughs> so, but, and I was more, I was more worried about, am I going to survive the addiction? Mm-hmm. And by grace and gratefully, I had a team of doctors that embraced me. And that's important. You know, Tammy, I got to tell you, because when I think about 1987, and I have covered this for a number of years, I'm a little older than that I wasn't in, uh, I wasn't six, but, uh, but I wasn't covering it then. But in, in doing the research and covering this, and I think back to 1987, and all the optics are around, just even the language coming out of the White House. Yeah. And when I hear you say you had this support group, you had these wonderful doctors. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a little surprising because of what we were hearing through the media back then. And to hear you say that you had the support and, and these wonderful doctors from Grady, that is, that's, I got to tell you, that's a little emotional for me. It is for me. Um, this nurse practitioner said it was okay if I used her name. So when I finally decided I needed to get into care, um, Andrea Jefferson Sabor, Mm -hmm. and I remember weighing like maybe 90 pounds, and I walked in her office, and I think I was looking for someone to just, you know, to have that pity party. I wasn't well at all. And I remember her telling me, I said, are you going to be my doctor? You know, who are you? And she told me, we're going to do blood work. We're going to do some conversation. We're going to talk, and then I'm going to see what's going to come after that. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then as years went on, she realized that, wow, you, you got something else going on. And I said, I have nothing else going on. She said, but Tammy... Are you on drugs? You have some mental health issues. Have you ever been? She was asking all this, and I became really kind of angry. But if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here today by the grace of God. She walked me through everything. She did more crying than me. (laughs) And um, she helped me get into rehab. She said, you're going to therapy. And then when I went to therapy, I would be lying to the therapist. And then one day, I said, you know what, I'm tired. And she asked me, I came into the office. She said, I need to ask you, do you want to live or do you want to die? My mental health said, think about it. And I thought about it. And then reality kicked in. I have children, I have grandchildren, mother, father, I have a good family. And I said, I'm gonna live. So I'm in long-term recovery, 11 years. May 17th was 11 years. And um, I'm about to be a homeowner. Look at you. Um, Pastor William Francis and his team gave me a car. I got off disability. Mm -hmm. I've been working in behavioral health for five years. I was one of their first black certified peer specialists in mental health. So what they talked about back then scared us, put us in fear. We gave up. But then 
after 10 years, we realized we were still living. Yeah. And it was like, okay. <laughs> and then on top of that, I'm a part of a wonderful agency, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. And I'm talking about They Rock. Yeah. And they have given me the opportunity to spread love and education and all of this in the rural area. And we're going to talk more about spreading that education in the rural population. We're also going to continue our conversation. Today is National HIV Testing Day. I'm joined by Tammy Kinney, HIV AIDS activist and founder for Rural Women in Action, and Janetta Richberg, Director of Client Services for Aid Atlanta. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As we talk about National HIV Testing Day, I'm joined by Tammy Kinney, HIV AIDS activist founder, Rural Women in Action, and Janetta Richberg, Director of Client Services, Aid Atlanta. Tammy, as a kid say, my phone is blowing up. Oh, my gosh. People are... <clears throat> people are inspired. People are calling you queen. You know, black folk. We call we call we call folks queen. We love calling folks yeah. queen, boy. We we'll queen it up. Yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> Your story, and Jeanette, I promise I'm gonna get to you. I'm not. You know, I'm not purposely leaving you out. But tell me this story. How often do you tell this story to folks who probably feel that they have a a death sentence that there is no way out, even though it's Decades later, from 1987, when you had your first diagnosis, you, you tell them that story. I know you do. I do. Jeanette, I'm going to let uh, Tammy gather herself. When you talk to folks, and if someone comes to you and they've just recently been diagnosed or got a diagnosis, and what are they thinking? What are they saying? Yes, um, Tammy, first, let me just say thank you for sharing your story. Um, and like you said, you know, by the grace of God, you are where you are now. You know, you were put here for a reason and you have a purpose. And it's it's awesome that you've shared that with us. You know, we get so many different people coming in that they, they come in in different in different mindsets. You know, you have um, some one that is newly diagnosed, there is still the feeling that I'm going to die. And we know that in a lot of cases, that's not the case. You know, that is something that can totally be prevented if you take the next steps. But sometimes taking those next steps are much easier said than done. It's especially being in the South, the stigma is there. You know, some people don't have the support. Tammy, it's awesome that you did. Some people come to Aid Atlanta and we're the only people that they can talk to or wherever they may go. Mm -hmm. We may be the only people that know 
that they're dealing with this. And in sense, they're dealing with it alone. And that could be devastating. Southern states have the highest burden of HIV infections. And this is according to the CDC. So don't folks email me saying, you know, did I make that up? No. And for a part of the nation that has maybe just under 40% of the total population, but accounts for more than 50% of all new HIV cases on an annual basis. What, what are we, what are those barriers here, Jeanette? Is it, is it stigma? Is it lack of access? Is it a, a whole bunch of other factors involved here? It's all of that, plus some. Um, and as, as you all know, in the South, unfortunately, we, we get a rep for being the highest in a lot of things that we don't want to be <laughs> the highest in. I mean, health disparities, you know, alone in the South, you, you see that the numbers are um, disproportionately high than other regions of the country. Um, it's a lot of things that Tammy mentioned earlier, even you know, knowing your status, mm -hmm. that is one very important um, part of things. If you're not symptomatic, then you know you may not be rushing to try to go to the doctor or to see you know what's going on but people have to understand that you even if you have hiv it doesn't mean that you're going to be showing symptoms especially with all the other things that are happening out here mm -hmm. you could be having COVID symptoms and it could be a symptom of hiv maybe you went and took a COVID test but you did not take the steps to take an mm -hmm. hiv test because you didn't think that's what it was what is the first line of action or resources that you all try to provide for someone who comes in, they've got it, they've they're newly diagnosed. What is that first line of, of act or treatment resources that you all are offering? One main thing that um, I think we, we try to do a, a good job at this is letting people know that it's not the end. I think that is a very important part in that you can hear this diagnosis and you can feel that well you know I, I, there's nothing else I can do and mm -hmm. that's really not the case there are a lot of things that you can do and even knowing that there are resources out there because that's one thing too a lot of people don't know that there are resources that are available to them and here in Atlanta in Fulton County in the Atlanta region there are, there seems to be a lot of resources appears to be but Tammy I want to shift a little bit to the rural part of Georgia because, you know, you can drive down Ponce or you can see mm -hmm. billboards that say, you know, HIV testing here. It's a plug, but, you know, I don't care. I, I love Out of the Closet, which is a thrift store here right near the station, because I know that proceeds go toward for, you know, care, for access, all that. So we have that here in, in this urban area. But what about when we get outside to the rural part of the state? Do folks have not only just access, but do they have awareness about where to go? No. I have found out that we have to create what we need. How? We have to have, at one time, I was doing cocktails and conversations. I didn't have the cocktails because I'm in long-term recovery, but I had fruit cocktail. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> we would basically talk about Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about relationships. And the agency that I'm with now, 
had a program called the Rise Program for black women. Okay, but that went away, and women of color, they had nowhere else to go. And then it was it is an agency. I don't think I should call that agency's name, mm -hmm. but they are just, it may be one or two people that is coming through that particular aid service organization. So safely to say by me being an AHF mobilizer working in the rural, I create safe spaces for um, women of color, for all women, mm -hmm. um, because they want to do things. They want to be a part of something because we used to have to travel to Atlanta and then somebody may not have gas, we may not have money, and, and we just want to be a part of something bigger than we are. So we just create our own safe space, and we, we talk about HIV, we talk about mental health, we talk about relationships, and we talk about all that stuff. We just had a testing event, I can call this agency's name, at the Sparrow's Nest in mm -hmm. Athens. Mm -hmm. We tested 54 people, and everybody that came wanted to help with the table. They want to be a part of something that is new and is is different and as a mobilizer I, I provide that. Often we hear that there are cultural factors uh, you can point to <sighs> there's so many cultural factors you can point to unemployment you can point to poverty uh, perhaps other substance disorder issues um, I is it more prevalent in in rural or urban or does in, that even matter sometimes it does matter because when it let's talk about housing if you don't mind absolutely housing everybody that has a diagnosis of hiv they put them all in the same place i have a problem with that and the reason is not because of the individuals are hiv it's just like you are setting us aside from other people like we can't mingle Okay, then if you have an addiction and you're HIV positive and you got mental health, okay, it's almost like y'all live over there. So it's some of us over there and some of us over there, but everybody know that everybody got something going on. And, and, and to me, that's unacceptable. And if it's a, um, one of my black sisters or women of color or just a woman, you know, I try to encourage them, it's more to, to you than what you think. Take a chance. You know, let's see what getting a job, what would that look like for you? Because mm -hmm. everybody is afraid to leap out, step out, and get employment because they feel like they have to disclose the status. Mm -hmm. They feel like they have to say they're in recovery. or they, it's, it's a lot of fear with women of color mm -hmm. in the rural area. Janetta, let me, let's focus on housing. And we know that in, there's a whole nother conversation about the city of Atlanta and their Hopwell program and housing, housing in general is an issue. Because if I had a dollar for every show I did on housing, we'd all be riding around in my brand new Tesla. <laughs> but housing, you heard what Tammy had to say here. Well, what do you think in terms of Tammy saying, look, let's not just put everybody with this diagnosis and with these other issues all just in this one 
this one residence, this one house. It, it, does that need to change? Uh, definitely. I mean, um, you know, we still go back to the the stigma part of things. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, that's going to be as part of every conversation. Um, it's important that I'm trying to get my words right here. Um, we it's important that people are able to find their safe spaces that we are I don't I don't want to say normalizing there may be a better word for it I, I can't I think of what that word is right now um, but we we have to look at at this differently especially when it comes to you know the education piece of things like what HIV is just a part of what those that are living with it or dealing with. There's mm-hmm. so many other parts, even what Tammy has spoken about, so many other aspects of her life. HIV is just one of them. When it comes to the example she gave of the housing piece, my question would be why? Mm-hmm. You know, if we're just looking at, mm-hmm. yes, this person needs housing assistance. Mm-hmm. You know, housing in Atlanta Metro is ridiculous and, and has been for a long time, but it's even worse now. You know, we're in a housing crisis. It's more important to get people into safe and stable housing, mm-hmm. no matter where it is, than to say, hey, this is this group just needs to be here. So let's, if we can, if we can, let's shift then to what is working? What's been working? Well, Tammy is a living example of what's working. We know that. Because you talked about support, not just from your family, but also from the medical community. And we know that's come a long way. It has. And to have nurse practitioners and nurse educators and doctors that believe in what they do, their service work for people living with HIV, diagnosed with HIV and AIDS, they have a job to do. And if in my personal opinion, if you're not dedicated to what you're designed to do, then there's always room for somebody else to come in and do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes me back to the Denver principles. We are just simply people living with AIDS. And sometimes we just have to be in the care of others. Just like if somebody had Alzheimer's or somebody, um, just just any other um, illnesses or disease. We just have to be mm-hmm. in the care of others sometimes. So where is that compassion and, you know, not the sympathy, but sure. the compassion and the passion for people living with HIV and AIDS? Janetta, what is working? That of the... Availability of the support, mm-hmm. I think, is is what works. We look at those that are working directly with those living with HIV that are helping them overcome barriers, mm-hmm. your peer navigators, your mm-hmm. patient navigators, your case managers, your doctors, your nurse practitioners, mm-hmm. those that care about your well-being. Having those connections Um, I think plays a a huge role. I mean, we can see that those that are connected to those support services, including housing assistance as well, those connected to these support services show that the ability for them to be retained in care goes up. 
because you have this additional support. You have someone that's pushing you, even if you don't want to push yourself at this point, because everybody's at different stages. But having that service, those services available, I think really makes a difference and over the years has really shown that that it works. Now, it is a partnership. So it's not that, you know, you just go, you know, you're talking to a case manager and voila, magic wand, everything is great. It doesn't quite work like that. There's work that has to be done on both ends. But I think just having people on your side can really can really make a big difference and has shown to make a big difference. Let's talk about money, because I love to ask folks about funding. Mm -hmm. And we hear that funding has increased for southern states. Uh, We we keep hearing that. But also, when you compare that to the actual outcomes, one could argue that there's still, well, it's never really enough in terms of funding. And also, to those organizations who are, as we say, boots on the ground, the small organizations who Mm -hmm. are meeting folks where they are, you know, I have this conversation all the time in the world of nonprofits. The big nonprofits get all the money and the smaller ones kind of get just left with, you know, the crumbs. And that's not to be little. I'm just saying that's, that's what I hear. So when it comes to funding, is that also just key? we got to have more funding because more funding means maybe more housing, more opportunities for a community center to have support groups that Tammy yes. can lead. <laughs> Because I got Tammy out there now. <laughs> I'm going to give you the money question, Janetta. Yeah, I mean. And public policy. It's always a good question <laughs> to answer, right? I suppose. Uh, but, yeah, funding, I mean, for me, um, like you mentioned, funding is very is, is very important. It's one of those, always one of those hot topic um, items where it's not just about the funding, but it's also about the availability the accessibility of that mm-hmm. funding that's there and to me it is never enough mm-hmm. you know i'm always looking for more money because mm-hmm. more money does mean more services you know that can be provided uh, more doctors that can be hired more service providers that can you know be hired in order to assist more transportation assistance mm-hmm. that's one thing um, i did want to mention when you talk about some of the differences between what you find in rural areas and just accessibility of, you know, services, you have some people that are traveling three hours round trip Mm. trying to get to a medical appointment. Wow. That's a a lot of of time. And if they don't have that transportation, you have these agencies and this is where funding comes in. Mm -hmm. If there's a small pot of funding for transportation, but it's $150 for that one trip, you have smaller agencies that aren't even able to get their patients to them for care. Tammy, as we wrap up, I'll give you the last word. What is your message to anyone out there listening on National HIV Testing Day? Janetta and I, it is an honor for both of us to be on WABE (laughs) 90.1. That's your message. All right. And we would like to remind folks to go to freehivtest.net and find the nearest testing site in your area. All right. That's like a promo. I'm going to have to put you on the payroll for that. (laughs) Wow. Tammy Kinney, HIV AIDS activist, founder, Rural Women in Action, and Janetta Richberg, director of client services for Aid Atlanta. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for all that you do for our community. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
The Supreme Court has strengthened Second Amendment rights to gun ownership and overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. Ongoing reaction to those decisions on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on 90.1 WABE. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're going to go back again and revisit a conversation from 2017 with Atlanta-based famed photographer Billy Howard. I photographed uh, people that were HIV positive or had full-blown AIDS, and I would take the photograph and print the image at the top half of a 11 by 14 sheet of photographic paper. Then I would give it to the subject, the person I had photographed, with a pen. And I told them they could write whatever they wanted to write about living with the disease. And at the time, it was uh, pretty much universally a death sentence. I photographed Drew in Washington, D.C. And Drew had, Drew was blind. And he was blind because he had been mugged and beaten up because he was gay. So not only was he dealing with AIDS, but he was dealing with uh, blindness caused by hatred. I gave him his picture, and what he wrote on his picture was, dying from AIDS is hard enough. Living with it is even harder. Drew Carroll. Well, that's, that's Roy. And Roy was one of the people I photographed that I became very close to. He was, a, he was an amazing man. Like Ron, he, was, um, he ended up living in a pretty dingy, small, one-room little apartment. And when I met him, he was watching uh, daytime television. So I was watching the television, and I was, I was photographing Roy, and I was thinking, you know, these soap operas were on, and, and I thought in the back of my mind, maybe an embrace will happen, or somebody will come up with a gun, or something symbolic will happen on that TV. So I was kind of watching it out the corner of my eye, and, and a pantyhose commercial came on. terrific news for smart shoppers. That great no-nonsense value is now even better. Don't miss the news in this Sunday's and this, paper this about the spectacular this scene came up with regular queen 99 cents and I shot it and I went oh no and sure enough that's the one that I liked the most so I would shoot a ton of pictures of everybody but there was always one that sort of rose to the top for me I wanted each of the subjects to be empowered so I told them that I was going to show them a photograph if they didn't like it they could I, I'd pick another one we'd pick another one that they liked so I, when I went back to Roy's with this photograph of him sitting on the bed looking pretty intense with the television beside him, with regular Queen, 99 cents, I said, Roy, if you, if you don't like this, I'll print it. He loved it, and, um, and I was relieved. And what he wrote, Roy was, um, was kind of kicked out of his family because, number one, he was gay. Number two, he had AIDS. Number three, he lived in Birmingham. And so he came to Atlanta to, to find a place where he could fit in, and he did. And what he said was, in the midst of illness, rejection, isolation, and probably death, out of the darkness, hands reaching out, not family, friends, or lovers, but strangers, loving, caring, giving of themselves, have renewed my faith 
and are my strength. I love you. Roy Griffin. He had gotten kicked out of one family and discovered a much bigger, broader, more open family in Atlanta. And I kept in touch with Roy for a couple of years, but um, he eventually succumbed to the disease. But he was an important person in my life. There wasn't one story that was the most compelling, but I'll tell you one story. And uh, that's the story of a man named D. He wanted to be anonymous, and he called me and he asked me if I would take his, uh, let, allow him to write in the book, but without a photograph. And I said, well, I'm a photographer, and, and I think we can work out a way where I can take your photograph and um, make it so you're anonymous. So what D wrote about was about fear-ridden insurance companies shunning the positive and embracing the worst and ignorant employers are just that. He said, we wish you knew we were healthy and shall continue with care and divine providence. We wish to be unmasked. However, fear and ignorance prevail. May God bless us, comfort us, and teach us, all of us. So when I went to um, meet Dee at his apartment, we, we tried to figure out a way to get this photograph and we came up with a solution. He had a turtleneck sweater and I had him pull it up over his nose and mouth, and so only his eyes were showing. And then I had him put his hand up over one of his eyes and his other hand to the side of his face, so that all that is showing is a little quarter of his face with his eye. And it, uh, it allowed him to make his statement and yet be anonymous. The thing that, that is so important to me about D is by the time I finished writing the last piece that I was going to put into the book, 15 of the people I had photographed had died. By the time the book came out, 18 of the people had died. And the book process took 18 months. So that's like one person a month died. And I went to every memorial service I could. It was harrowing. Um, but at the same time, somebody would die, but I always had somebody I was getting ready to meet. Or somebody new coming into my life all the time during that period. The thing that hit me after I finished the project and we went to press was I wasn't meeting those new people, getting those new stories. I was just losing people. And I tried to keep up with people as best I could, but over the years, more and more of them died until I thought they were all gone. And about 20 years later, a little over 20 years later, I got a call from a friend who said they had lunch with somebody, and my name had come up, and he said, well, well, he took a picture of me for a book, and it was D. So I called him and arranged to see him again, and we met at Piedmont Park, and when he walked towards me, it felt like I was seeing a ghost walking back into my life. I thought, all of these people are gone. And he's a living touchstone to all of the people that I lost. And when he came up to me, he, he, we embraced. And he sat down, and I took his picture again, but this time with his face and a big smile. And he said in the, in the time since I had photographed him, he had embraced his diagnosis. 
he was proud of being able to survive. He was grieved for all the people that were lost, but he embraced his diagnosis. He had been able to hang on long enough with just a HIV positive diagnosis that the drugs and protease inhibitors and the things that could keep you alive came around. He survived, I just talked to him yesterday. And he moved to California where he's doing really well. I, I haven't done many things. Photography uh, is, is my love. I love photography, but I haven't done many things with it where I felt like it had uh, a lasting impact. That, that one thing was probably the most powerful moment up to that point for sure in my photography career as to what I could do with images and uh, and it and it has stayed with me ever since And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.